0: For just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com.
1: Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started.
0: Happy Tuesday, everybody. Today is August 17th, 2021, and today's guest is Mark Kenyon from Wired to Hunt. All right, welcome back to the Fall Podcast. I am your host Aaron Blasey, and today's episode is 174. And today's guest is a familiar voice. If you are familiar with outdoor hunting podcasts, and I'm talking about from the beginning, today's guest is Mark Kenyon from the Wired to Hunt podcast. And Mark is, I mean, one of the OGs, one of the uh, the the pavers, if you will, uh, he he paved the way for a lot of these outdoor podcasts back when podcasts weren't even really a thing before people knew anything about them. So that's today's guest. We have an awesome episode. I can't wait for all you guys to listen to this one. It's really cool. We talk about prep, you know, in the summer, but also how Marcus transitioned from what he used to do to what he does now with just. Maybe a little lack of time, you know, being a dad of two now and uh, how he's adapted his hunting style to still be able to get out in the woods and be efficient as well. Uh, we also get into hunting the first two weeks of October. So it's really cool. He breaks down how he does it and uh, I think there's some really cool insight in this one. So yeah, that I, I'm super excited about this one. Um, like I said, I've, I've looked up to Mark for a long time. He's done a lot for, you know, the people and myself included that have a podcast in the outdoor space. So, uh, I just want to tell him thank you for, for doing that and paving the way. So, um, with that being said, I do want to, I want to send out a shout out to the working class bow hunter guys, Kurt, Doug, Austin, Eric, Ross, all those guys over there. If you guys are wanting some more content and, and some awesome content and you don't know much about Working Class Bowhunter, go check out their podcast. They do an awesome podcast. It's Working Class Bowhunter podcast, down dirty, nitty gritty. I mean, they, they push the envelope and uh, I love it because I don't think it could be, you know, duplicated or done again. Um, these guys have a niche and speaking of ogs these guys are one of the ogs along with mark they've been doing it a long time so go check them out as well so with that being said i want to thank everybody out there for all the downloads and all the support and uh i want to get over to this interview with mark so here it is all right welcome back to the fall podcast and today's guest i have a familiar voice on if uh if you guys are familiar with outdoor podcasts it's uh mark kenyon from wired to hunt mark thanks for coming on again man
1: hey you're welcome glad to be here
0: yeah, definitely. I'm. I'm glad uh, we could carve out some time here to talk about, you know, some whitetail prep. You know, we're in August right now. We're getting ready to get into, you know, the Super Bowl of uh, everything that we do, and I'm super pumped about it. I know you probably are. So I'm excited to pick yes. your brain today.
1: Yeah, I'm chomping at the bit. The uh, the rising anticipation is nearing its peak, and uh, <laughs> yes. I I take off for my first time of the season here and. Oh, under, now well, about two weeks will be when I will leave to start heading out. So okay. uh, it's, it's going to be ready time now. And I'm I'm stoked. I'm excited, a little anxious, <laughs> everything in between.
0: So I guess the big question is, is do you have everything ready to go? Like right now, where are you on panic mode? Like trying to cram everything in?
1: You know, I, I've never once any season in my entire life. Have I ever got to the end <laughs> or got to the beginning of the season? and felt like I had everything ready to go. Um, but, I think what having kids has done for me is has allowed myself to forgive myself for not having everything ready. I guess I've had to adjust my expectations of what's actually realistic. Um, And then also kind of I've moved away kind of out of necessity. I've moved away from having a million things done in the preseason that are like set for this situation, set for this situation, set for this situation, and I've instead moved more and more towards a hunting style that allows me to, you know, you need to have some stuff figured out preseason, but I do a lot on the fly now. A lot of my hunting prep is maybe done just between my two ears and I'm just scouting, you know, with e-scouting and maybe do some on the ground stuff, but then it's hunting season, figuring out what's happening right now, adjusting right now, setting up a saddle right now. So that has kind of, that that has been a necessity because I just don't have as much time as I used to now that I'm, you know, chasing two kids around all the time and all the other responsibilities that come with family and work and sure. just like everybody else, right? Yep. So um, so that's been like an evolution for me from, you know, 13 years ago when I was single and just off on my own. I could spend every day of the year doing stuff. Now I need to be a lot more efficient with my time. So yep. I got stuff to do still, but most of the big projects that I did want to do are done, and now it's mostly just keeping my archery up to speed and feeling good about that and uh, jumping in with both with both feet.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's funny to hear you say that because I've kind of made that transition as well, about the same as you have. I've got a, a daughter that's going to turn four years old and here shortly in August, and honestly, my I started morphing my hunting um, tactics I guess you could say or the way I approach things last year I I went like exclusively more or less run and gun like take a stand in with me take it down like this year I've got two farms here in Michigan one's Big Woods one's a farm farm country the Big, ones, big Woods one haven't even set a camera on it haven't set a stand on it yet my whole thing is like I'm going to go in in October and I'm just going to start scouting with a stand on my back and just kind of like let woodsmen take my woodsmanship kind of take that over and uh same kind of thing though i mean you get wrapped up in a lot of different things you know you're being dad you're being father or you know father and husband and all that stuff and um yeah it's it's cool to it it, it's like you're almost okay with like uh for me anyway like i haven't got my fall food plots in yet and i'm like i feel like i need to do it but i'm like "Eh, if it doesn't happen i think i'm all right like it's not like a make or break kind of yeah i'll figure it out as i go so
1: Yes, it's, it's, it's an empowering feeling to kind of realize that you're not beholden to any one thing, right? I yeah. mean, I used to be in the same boat. Like, I had to get these six yep. stands prepped perfect, and I had to get these food plots in perfect, or I had to have, you know, this permission and this permission and this thing, and if it didn't happen, oh, I'm screwed. But uh, I think this comes with experience and time. But as you become less and less dependent on any one thing and you develop this ability to, to kind of adapt – I just think it opens up so many doors when you know like oh yeah this thing goes wrong no problem yep. I'll figure it out this thing goes wrong no problem like it makes things so much more fun for sure um, first off and then I think it makes you more likely to ultimately fill tags too but yeah. it, it, there's not an easy way to get to that point I think it it just requires a lot of trial and error and 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 just doing the work and then we all kind of get to a point where we're closer to that kind of effortless state at some point
0: yep no i agree yeah and and that adaptability is powerful as well like i feel like one of the biggest things that make whitetail hunters like really good is people that can really adapt on the fly and if you can like really hone in that skill adapting and like moving going like i feel like in my opinion you can you can be really successful
1: yeah for sure
0: well, cool. I, I want to get into some prep here. My first question is for you is, you know, you and I grow, grew up in Michigan um, for, you know, longest time now. It's a it's a no-bait state, can't put out any mineral, can't put any bait. For these these months right now, when you're getting inventory for bucks on camera, if you're trying to do that, what are some secrets that you are doing to kind of get those bucks on camera when you cannot use... supplemental feeding or you know the bait that kind of stuff like what are some secrets you have
1: yeah you know it's definitely more tricky um no doubt about it it's it's harder to get those summer pictures without a trophy rock or a pile of corn or whatever it is and my buddies in Iowa are always sending me these pictures or whatever state (laughs) where they can do it ohio and you know these bucks are sitting there smiling for the camera every night clear as day and you don't get as many of those when you don't have those tools but you know there are things you can do to help um I'd say the first thing I'm always looking at is food or water. Like what's, what's the most attractive summer food source around right now. I want to be as close as I possibly can, maybe even right on it if I can be. So in a lot of the spots I hunt, that's soybean fields. So I'm going to have cameras on soybean fields or as close to them as I can get and try to put them on spots where those deer are most likely to come in and out right? Just like hunting, you're trying to find where's the travel corridor or where's the little pinch point or the little feature that's just going to funnel a little bit more of that deer movement past my camera. Yep. So, you know, like an inside corner of a soybean field where it meets with a standing cornfield. That's kind of like a picture-perfect kind of place that a lot of deer are going to come in and out of a bean field. That's a good place to put a summer camera. Um, maybe there's a fence crossing where the top Two strands of barbed wire are down and that's going to funnel more deer to cross into the bean field at that point. So you've got you've got the draw, which is the bean field, and then you need to narrow down the stretch along the bean field to try to figure out like where the most deer are gonna pass through. That's part two. And then part three, what I like to do with almost all of my summer cameras, if I can, is put them pointing towards a licking branch, whether it's one that was there naturally, that naturally there's a scrape happening, you know, in the fall, previous years, mm-hmm. or I'll just make a mock scrape. Um, because even though deer aren't making scrapes in August, they absolutely will still visit them and check them. So if there's a mock scrape made or if there's a historical scrape and there's a licking branch that's still hanging over there, once you put a camera over these things, you know, folks would be amazed to see how many deer still hit them, like visit them, smell them, rub their foreheads and their antlers up in those trees, the does come and smell them. So it's still an area of communication for deer. So that's the little tool that can then stop them in front of your camera and maybe get a deer that otherwise might have walked anywhere within a 30, 40 yard area, now if there's that mock scrape that every deer that passes through there wants to just get a sniff of, that draws them into your camera zone. So I think you kind of have to combine factors to get the best situation like this. So I'm, I'm next to or looking at that soybean field or clover field or whatever it is in your area, and then I'm gonna try to find some kind of feature that funnels movement, inside corner, fence crossing, creek crossing, whatever, low spot in the field. And then I'm going to hopefully have some little sweetener that gets them to stop right where my camera is, which in my case is usually a, a mock scrape, a licking branch, something okay. like that. Yep. Um, you could also do this with like a watering hole, either something you put in yourself or find a small pond or, you know, a little patch of, of lowland in some timber where there's standing water. Like those spots can also be great, summer draws. Um, those would be the two types of areas that I focus ninety nine percent of my summer cameras on when i can't use any kind of attractive
0: when you were when you're doing the mock scrape thing are you like in these months august september are you putting anything in those mock scrapes are you roughing them up at all or are you just kind of you know there's a licking branch here there's more than likely been you know a scrape of some sort here in the past are you just kind of letting the deer do their thing or are you kind of like freshening it up with anything at all
1: i absolutely freshen it up um I will rough up that ground and make it big and visual just because I want, I think, you know, just as much as anything else, that big dirt oval on the ground that are made, you know, by deer scraping those things, that's a visual cue so that, you know, especially if this is a mock scrape that I'm creating, that's new deer is not going to necessarily notice it unless you give them a big visual stop sign that says, Hey, look over here. There's a big fresh new scrape. Right. You should come check this out. And so, Scuffing up a big, very obvious area is particularly important at this time of year, I think, to make that happen. So, I'll, you know, if I can, I'll try to scuff up a, I don't know, like a, almost like a car hood sized area or like a computer desk area, like three foot by four foot or something. I'll just carve it right out. Um, make it so obvious that anything that's in the general area will have to swing by. Mm-hmm. And then eventually a deer will, and the deer will leave some scent, and then the next deer comes there and he smells, oh, there was a deer here. So he'll leave a scent, and then the next one, and it keeps on perpetuating. Yep. And then you have a a, a natural scrape eventually. Um, I'll usually take a, I'll take a pee right in it myself to kickstart a little bit of scent in there. That ammonia um, is, is basically what a deer is leaving behind when they pee in there too eventually. And A lot of studies have shown that Deer don't react in a kind of negative way to that if anything it kind of helps just kickstart things so I take a piss in there and uh and then I get out leave it alone and I leave it alone as long as I possibly can
0: okay I've done the same thing here in Michigan took a pee in my scrapes and honestly I feel like the next day I had deer all over it <laughs> you know yeah. like there's bucks in it and really I have it in my opinion I know there's a lot of people out there talking about it like does it affect deer at all. In my opinion, it hasn't affected any deer yet. So I agree with you. I did about the same thing.
1: Yep. I remember there was a study that came out, I don't know, <laughs> excuse me, the early 2000s. I think it would have been like 2008 or 2009 when I read read about it. And it, it compared there's a whole series of different options and a control group so it was like there's cameras monitoring how deer would react to a commercial lure there was how deer would react to human urine there was how deer would react to no nothing added at all there was all these different options and basically what i found is that almost none of those things made a difference whether it was a commercial scent or the human urine it was basically the same reaction um so i've since that point i have let it fly from the tree stand i don't care if i need to take a leak i'm taking a leak if i want to you know just get a little something going in a scrape i'll use my own scent yeah um that's that's what i've always done ever since that point
0: with some of those mock scrapes that you know might be on field edges or something like that that are in the summer have you monitored those scrapes like throughout the fall and do do majority of them do you see like are they still active throughout the fall and like you know, the the rutting months, stuff like that, are they still pretty active, or is it do they start dwindling down a little bit with the activity?
1: You know, it depends. I've certainly seen examples of both. Um, I think the biggest thing is that daylight activity changes, so you might have a decent amount of daylight activity on an edge of a bean field camera in July and August, and that's simply because, right, these deer, and bucks especially, just feel more comfortable out on those field edges in daylight in July and August, uh, they're in bachelor groups. They're not being hunted. Um, they're just doing the thing, right? That's why so many of us love glassing bean fields and doing all that kind of stuff because they're about as visible as they're going to be all year. Uh, once hunting season hits, cover starts coming down, deer behavior starts changing, hunters start entering the woods, you know, as, as most of, as most of us have seen, you know, deer activity on fields, especially mature buck, activity goes down now in some places less so but you know where you and i hunt in michigan uh it definitely dwindles significantly Mm -hmm. so that daylight activity goes down a lot but you'll probably still and i think in most of my examples i can think of off the top of my head they're still checking it out at night right um but it's just going to be different so those back in the cover scrapes are going to be where that daylight activity starts shifting towards
0: yep definitely now with the shift that's going to happen here soon, you know, these bucks are going to not be so bachelored up, you know, we're getting close to October 1st, you know, let's talk specifically Michigan right now, but do you have a date in mind that if you're like by this day, it's usually the shift happens for you no matter what, like, and if so, what is roughly that day?
1: Yeah. So it definitely is variable. Every deer is different. Um, But the number I usually have in my head is September 7th. Okay. Like that first full week of September. Once that first full week of September is cleared, I'm usually pretty confident that whatever bucks are still around are going to be the ones that are going to stick around. Um, Those summer bucks, I feel like as soon as August wraps up, their antlers harden up, the testosterone is rising. As soon as that velvet comes off, those deer seem to be like their behavior and their travel changes at that point. They've reached some kind of threshold where all of a sudden those bachelor groups break up. All these bucks kind of find where their home turf is going to be for the fall. For some of these bucks, they stay right there. For some of those bucks, they're relocating. I would say, anecdotally, I kind of a, just eyeballing what I would what I've seen over the years. I kind of give it like a 50 Like about fifty percent of the bucks I'm seeing in the summer stick around. Okay. About fifty percent of them move somewhere else, and that's on small properties. So. I'm sure if I expanded my range that I could watch, they. I might be able to keep them around. But, you know, I don't have any place that I hunt that's more than 100 acres. Yep. Um, so I've got a couple places that are neighboring that I can kind of add up to a little more than 100, I guess. But, you know, generally about half of them move off somewhere outside of that 100-acre type region. Okay. Um. So, yeah, by September 7th, usually most deer have lost their velvet here in Michigan. Most of those deer have kind of push to their spot um and at that point i can say okay this is who's here this is who's likely going to be the deer i'll be able to hunt and you can start thinking about you know the things they start doing then are things that i care about from a hunting perspective Mm -hmm. you know what what a buck's doing on august 15th how he comes in and out of the field or what time he came out or whatever it's kind of interesting and i can learn a little bit from that but i'm not sitting there thinking "Ooh, he came out to this field edge You know, four days in a row, August 1, 3, and 6, I'm not looking at that summer behavior and really trying to extrapolate anything from that to what he'll do in October because stuff changes so much. But once we get to September and once I know that, okay, this deer, these two bucks are probably the bucks that are going to be here. So now I'm really paying attention to what they're doing and what they're doing September 15th might impact how I try to hunt them on October 1st. Mm -hmm. So things really get queued up. Once September 7th hits, that's when I'm really focused on glassing to try to learn something to kill a deer. That's when, you know, whatever the cameras are telling me matters a lot more. It shifts from just inventory to, okay, what are they doing? Because now this can help me actually hunt. Yep. Um, so it's, it's a shift in deer behavior, but it's a big shift in my behavior too.
0: Once that 50% leaves, you know, quote, unquote, like whatever you want, it, you think it's 50%, which honestly i can agree with that statement around me like i feel like it's like cut right down the middle usually when does that like recruitment to your property come like start trickling in you know what i mean like bucks that you haven't been seeing the newbies like when do they start coming in and do you start noticing that
1: yeah i think it happens right around the same time um so you maybe just don't notice it for another week or two because it just takes that long for For you to pick up on it. But I think that somewhere around the beginning of September is when whatever new is coming to your place shows up. Um, for whatever reason, if I'm thinking of like a couple of the places here in Michigan that have hunted the very most over the last decade or so, a lot of these places don't pick up new bucks. It's usually I just lose them. (laughs) I lose them, I lose them in the beginning of September and usually there's nobody new. So there might be like four nice bucks that I was seeing or three nice bucks that I was seeing in the summer. And then September hits and then I'm down to one or I'm down to two max. Um, That has been the case more years than not in a lot of spots I've hunted around here. Um, That's not the rule. I've, I've had a few years where newbies show up, but usually the newbies that I see are like the rut you yep. get the random buck that shows up on Halloween and he sticks around for a little bit or the random buck that comes through one day in on the sixth and one day in on the 15th and that's it. Um, so that, that's been my experience. But, but again, you know, to be clear, like my experience is, you know, Southern Michigan, small properties, agriculture land where it's like 60% crops, 40% cover. Yep. Um, so that's a little bit different than someone who's got 500 acres in a different kind of habitat type.
0: Yeah, definitely, and and that's, uh, that intrigues me because the farm country piece that I have, I would say it's even a little more. I'd say it's like 80% crop, maybe 75% crop, and the rest is kind of, there's just like wooded front rows, little, little spots of woods that are just like little timber. Like you, you walk in like a four-acre piece of timber and you're blowing deer out the other side. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like that's kind of what it is. So it intrigues me. That that I love that kind of hunting. I've only been doing that in Michigan around here for the last probably five or six years because I've always been like a big woods hunter. Um and I find it more uh I don't I don't know. It's it's it it gets me jacked up more and I don't know if it's because I can see deer more where I can see the bucks come out. I can see where they're a little easier to hunt, I feel like. Um and it's not so much like doing an educated dart throw in, like, a big timber scenario, you know, and I'm going to go here and see what happens kind of thing. But uh, what would you say in farm country hunting, in your opinion, would be, like like, a number one rule of thumb, like, do and don't, if that makes sense. Like, definitely do not do one of these things and then, you know, hone in on something like this. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So one definitely do not do thing is something that so many people do even though it's preached all the time um and even i've been guilty of this some days because you have days where you just get tired and lazy and like i don't give a crap anymore i just want to get home so mm-hmm. i understand this um but don't come in and out across these fields when deer are out there feeding um it's just i mean it's so simple it's so kind of deer hunting 101 but it wasn't until i got you know i don't know in my twenties that I started like thinking like, Oh yeah, that actually does matter. And I still have buddies that are well beyond that who still like, that's ah, fine. But if you're, if you're trying to especially hunt a buck, you know, three or four years or older here in Michigan, they don't tolerate a lot of crap. I, right. I've learned over the years they 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 tolerate a little more than I used to think. Um, I've, I've found that you can get away with some things, but one thing you can't get away with is repeated abuse of their, you know security. So if you come in and out, crossing a, you know a soybean field, and you're doing it at night when you're done hunting, and you walk across it, and every deer that came out to feed in it is spooked by you walking on two feet, and that's happening every weekend. If you don't think that's going to change deer behavior, you are, you're way off base. Um, so don't do that. You need to come up with a creative solution to avoid that kind of situation. You got to be able to get in and out. In farm country, it's those fields that are the, the big culprits in a lot of cases. Yep, you got to find a way around them. Um, so it might be taking the back way out through the timber if you've got access in a different way. If you have to get across those fields some kind of way, you know, you've got to get creative with the mode of transportation you're taking. You know, best case scenario is having a friend or a wife or a whatever who would be willing to drive a truck or a ATV or something. You know either to you or even just drive it along the edge of the field to spook those deer so they're spooked by something else and then you slip out somehow uh if that's an option i do think that like getting out with wheels is less offensive so excuse me if you can ride a bike out or something like that that's less bad than walking out on two feet obviously human um i think deer are much more used to and more forgiving of vehicles um but a, a two-footed man walking is is a big blinking red light. Right. Danger, danger, danger. Um, so that's like one super simple thing that if you can, if that's been a mistake you've been making, if you can fix that one thing, that will dramatically change the kind of deer activity you see. Um, it's not, it's not always super simple, but once you find like the solution, then it becomes simple. just work until you find whatever that solution is for your situation and then just be willing to stick to it because usually any one of those options usually is more work than the easy option. The easy option is almost always just hop out of your stand, walk across the field, back to your truck or back to your house or right. whatever. Um, but if you can just be willing to put up with that little extra inconvenience, it, it's worth it. So that's one big thing to, to not do and to try to adjust to. Um, one thing to really key in on, I guess, I think... It would be just and again there, there's so much of this stuff and maybe it only feels this way because i live in this world every hour of my day <laughs> yep. and so i hear the same things um and so then i become like paranoid about talking about the same stuff all the time but there's only so many fundamental truths within the, the world of white-tail hunting and and one of them goes back to how deer relate to fields which is in relatively pressured areas places where deer have learned to fear humans, um, most of your daylight activity of bigger, older bucks, if that's what you're chasing after, they're going to have most of that activity happening back in the cover. So it's just super simple, but learn to get back in there a little bit, get a little more aggressive. Don't fall for the temptation of sitting a field edge all the time because like we see it on TV all the time, right? There's lots of TV shows that showcase, you know, successful hunts on field edges. Like, It, it can happen. Absolutely. Um, and it's just more likely to happen in certain areas where there's less pressure and there's more mature bucks and there's managed properties where these deer feel more comfortable. So if you have that situation and these bucks are comfortable, then yeah, go for it. But I don't have that. A lot of other people don't have that. Um, and so in those cases, you got to realize, all right. I don't have the thing that I see in the Outdoor Channel, that's fine. I can still kill a deer. I just need to adjust, and one of the simplest adjustments you can make when you're hunting in farm country is just get back off the field edge, even 40 yards. Even 40 yards off the field edge can make a big difference. Um, There's so many places I've hunted where I'm like, even where I've got a little secluded food plot that I think should be great and they should feel comfortable here, and I see all sorts of deer in the food plot and all sorts of activity and bucks and stuff, but every time there's like a four-year-old or a five-year-old buck on the property he's the only deer who skirts inside the edge of the cover Um, and if you're after that kind of deer um, more often than not when he comes through he's going to stay in there where he feels a little bit more safe Uh, not that he won't make mistakes he will but as a deer hunter you need to stack every odd that you can in your favor and if that's the deer you're trying to kill getting in there with him is going to put you more likely in his path. Mm -hmm. So again, this is pretty simple stuff. Um, but what's, what's, I think the difference between a lot of average deer hunters and like the really good ones, we all kind of know the same basic stuff. We're working with the same information. Everyone's listening to your podcast. Everyone's listening to my podcast. They're hearing the basic stuff they should do. I think the difference in many cases between those who go out and those who go out and fill their tags every year is that those people, are the ones that actually execute on all this stuff. Yep, They actually follow through. They're actually willing to do the extra work. They're willing to go the long way around. They're willing to push in and try things and, and go through with it versus just saying, oh yeah, I know that this thing's important, but when it comes right down to it, they get kind of lazy on it, or they get kind of sloppy on it, or they get tempted to just sit at the edge of the field where they can see you a mile, and that's fun. Um, so that, you know, comes down to choices and how far do you want to take it. And I think those two are very simple things, but if you can actually execute on it, there's no way it doesn't help.
0: I agree. You know, and everybody that listens to, like you said, your podcast and my podcast and every podcast out there, everybody's looking for the A plus B equals C, which is a big buck. There's really none of that. It's, you know, what works for me in central michigan might not work for you in southern michigan you know or yeah. out in iowa so i always say you have to you know take that information that we're saying but just apply it you know accordingly to your situation um and you hear john Eberhart talk about it too he will never hunt a field edge in michigan unless it's got secluded cover or, or security cover you know like corn or something like that but when he goes out of state kansas iowa he will sit them and i agree yeah. I've, and you've done it too you know i So it's just one of those things that, like, if you see something on the outdoor channel of Lee Likoski going out there and killing something over a beautiful, lush bean field, more than likely it's probably not going to happen here, you know? Um, Not saying it can't, but your odds are very, you know, very low, I guess you could say. It's
1: different. Different scenarios, different circumstances, and I think, you know, my take has always been You know, as I've gotten to talk to all these different people for my podcast and you know, all these different people have listened to all these folks, I've always said that take it all in. Even if the person is hunting in a wildly different place or scenario than you, take it all in because there's always something you can learn, but you gotta pass it through that filter. And that filter should be, you know, how does this person's circumstances compare to mine and how do their goals compare to mine? And then as long as you can then pass that through your own lens, maybe only two out of the 20 ideas he shared with you actually fits your style and your circumstances. But you want to still take advantage of those two out of 20. At the same time, what you don't want to do is you don't want to have no filter and then take in all 20 out of 20 ideas and then assume that, oh, all of that stuff will work here. And if it doesn't work for me here, then I'm a failure because I didn't do what Lee did um no it's not that either right so so i'd say consume and learn from everyone but do it with a discerning eye and then test you know i think one of the most important things that i've tried to do and am trying to do even more now is approach deer hunting using the scientific method so so like This stuff we learned about like biology class or chemistry or whatever back in 6th and 7th grade. This stuff applies to deer hunting, believe it or not. This is where you observe something, you have a hunch, or you hear something, someone tells you, hey, this is a thing that works. Or you're out there in the woods and you see deer do something, and you say, hey, I think that means this. So you've you've observed something. Now you're going to make a um, a hypothesis about it. You're going to say, okay, I think that deer will feed in food plots, and I can shoot deer in food plots because I saw Lee do it. Okay, so there's your hypothesis that you got based on Lee telling you this and based on watching him on his TV show. So the problem is a lot of people stop right there. They see this thing or they observe this thing or they're told this thing and then they make their belief statement. I think that this will work. And then they just keep on doing it and doing it and doing it thinking that it will work even if the results don't tell them that. The scientific method would tell you that you should do that, make that observation Put together like this is my hypothesis this is what i think is going to work and then you got to test it you gotta test it out and then look at the results like clearly and say okay I, i saw this thing that lee's doing i made a guess on how it might work for me i tried it and now i gotta look at the results and see did this thing fit into my world does this thing fit my circumstances or my goals or my area or the kind of deer that my area and test it out maybe test it out a couple different ways and then look and see okay does this work if not Do I toss this whole idea out or do I need to make some tweaks or do I need to look at it a different way? And now you make a new hypothesis. You say, okay, you know what? That didn't work. But I think maybe that's because of the fact I'm not in the cover. So I'm going to shift 30 yards into the cover and I'm going to test it again. And I'm going to watch what the results are and like doing that over and over and over, observe, make an idea, watch it, test it, adjust. Like that is just, that's the process that we got to go but it's very easy to get stuck and just keep doing the thing that you see on TV and never adjusting based on what you're seeing in real life
0: mm-hmm. you, when and, you when I'm sorry when you run your your test, did you see like a night and day difference right away or was it more of like a trickle effect like before you started like, oh yeah, I can't do that or man that really worked. you know what I mean is it is it kind of like is it something that you see? turnover in a season or has it been like you know a couple seasons where you're like okay I'm starting to get this a little bit how did that work
1: you know I think it's definitely more trickle it's it's not that there can't be some like very obvious aha moments there can be and if you are I think if you are doing this explicitly, like really thinking to yourself, okay, I saw this thing, I think this thing, I'm gonna try it, and then I'm really gonna pay attention to how deer react to it. Like something, there are some ways that you can do this pretty clear. Like for example, I'm seeing Casey Kiefer kill bucks with a buck decoy every year in this state and that state and every place. No one ever does it in Michigan because they say it won't work, but who says it won't work? Maybe it could work. So here's something I wanna test. And that's something that you can pretty clearly test it, and then see with your own eyes how deer are reacting to it. If you do it enough times, enough different situations, you can say, "Okay, I tried it five different days, and in these five different days with these different conditions, you know, 85 percent of the bucks that I saw, or, or you know, eight out of every ten deer I saw, blew out of there and made all sorts of noise, and it was a disaster." Like that's the kind of thing where you can get a pretty clear answer to your test. Yep. Um, so there are some situations like that. I think the key is to remember, like, okay, I'm I'm testing this thing. I'm watching. I'm thinking about it. And then when I get done, when I get in for the night, when I get done with my week, I'm really going to sit down and think about this. Like, okay, how did that really go? Is this worth trying again? What happened? Why did it happen? Um, then there's other things that just take take more time to come through. Um, <coughs> stuff like the field edge thing, like forever. Excuse me. I'm struggling here. I'm doing um, the same thing. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but, um, you know, when I first started like trying to target three-year-old bucks and four-year-old bucks, uh, I had moved to an area of the state that was supposed to be way better for deer hunting. And I thought, oh yeah, it's going to be way better than when I grew up with hunting in Northern Michigan. And so I thought I could hunt some of these field edges and I did sit field edges and I was seeing bucks. Like they were better than I'd ever seen in my whole life. And I thought, okay, this will work. It took me years though to see that there's a big difference between seeing a three-year-old buck or seeing a four-year-old buck and actually being able to kill one with a bow so that was something that took some time for it to sink into me Mm -hmm. and then i realized oh yeah you know what it wasn't just uh you know bad luck that you didn't kill that buck last year or the year after that maybe it's because they were always 50 yards out of range why were they always 50 yards out of range because you're sitting like a bozo in a tree in the field edge when he was back in there 50 yards into the timber, and you never adjusted to that. Right. So sometimes those things take a little time for the numbers to add up enough, the, the, the experiences to add up enough to be, have that like, oh, yeah, there's a pattern here. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there's some things you can do to speed that process up. One of them is something that I have tried to get better at and failed over and over again i'm going to try it again this year but every time i do it i'm like oh i need to do more of this and that is actually record what you're seeing so take notes take it have a hunting journal or something because you might think that you can remember everything in your head and you might think that you can keep track of all this kind of stuff but there are so many things going on in our lives you can't (laughs) you can't So if you, what I'm simply trying to, what I've done in some years, I make it three quarters of the way through season. Some years I get a quarter of the way through the season. I've yet to do it through an entire year, but I've done partial years many times. And record what you see after every hunt. Record where you were. Record as much information as you have time to do. So the spot, the wind, the temperature, the setup, what you saw. Uh, if you did anything like this, like I tested a decoy, here's how the deer react, like all that kind of stuff, it, it, it's really hard to grasp any kind of like takeaway from something if you look at any day or any hunt in isolation. Like one data point, like one day's experience, it's hard to like glean an insight. But if you are, if you could set back at the end of the season and go back through your journal and, rem- and see like, oh man, look at this. That's interesting. October 25th a buck did the same kind of thing. October 30th, buck did the same kind of thing. November one, same kind of thing. November eighth, same kind of thing. November 12th, same kind of thing. And maybe you were jumping all over the place and life was busy and you were dealing with kids and the hunts were long and you never actually saw that there was this overarching thing happening consistently, but because you were in life and life's crazy, that didn't pop out to you. Yep. But now when you step back and you look at the whole picture and you read the story of the whole season, those things all of a sudden stand out and you can say, ah, look at that. There's the test results I was looking for. Now I can adjust and, and learn from that. So I think that all, everything I'm saying here is kind of, it kind of requires going from like just hunting to hunting in like a purposeful way.
0: Purpose, hunt with a purpose. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, like think about this stuff afterwards, have a purpose to not just I'm going to get, There's nothing wrong with going out there and having a good time and just doing it just for that. But if you're trying to really up your game, if you're really trying to get better at this stuff and and you're setting goals for yourself, that's that's me. So this is the kind of stuff I think about. It it maybe doesn't apply to everyone. But if that's you, I think that taking that shift to to going through this whole thing in a kind of mindful way where you're taking time to think about these things, taking time to look back on what worked, what didn't, what kind of learned from these things, that whole mindset shift, has been what's transformed my success without a doubt.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to echo that because I've been since 2012, I've been taking a journal, but it's been like the same thing as you've done. Like you get halfway through the year and it just peters out. Well, last year, I said, fuck this. I am doing this. I'm doing it every day. Like doing it all because I want to see those data points. Like I want to yeah. see everything. So what I ended up doing is I went in on a desktop computer and I created an Excel sheet but and in Google Sheets and I transferred it to my phone. So then yep. all the all I gotta do is just like basically put in the points, like how many does did i see how many bucks did i see yep. were they quality bucks yada yada so on and so forth and i kept every sit every day That's great. um and i'd even keep like when casey and i were going out of state and i was filming him i would do what you know in ohio what our day was like and it helps me as an editor as well like i can go back oh, yeah. and be like oh we saw the big 10 on the eighth and almost had an opportunity so it keeps the story good there but um i have some comparables too to like i would a monitor my cell cams back in Michigan and I would write on those days like, hey, Michigan, bucks were moving like crazy that day. Yeah, you know that's awesome. um and honestly the 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 biggest data point that I took out of all of that was from October 19th through the 26th on my Michigan on my farmland Michigan farm was the hottest rut. Those six days for I had three shooters that were pope and younger, bigger that were daylighting every day. And I had, wow. I had like a 130 inch buck. Um, he was with a doe for 36 hours, uh, locked down with a doe in, in a wide open bean field, um, for 36 hours. And I'm like, holy cow, like this is this is good stuff, you know, yeah. like this is good to know. Um, but for some reason, the rut was hot for those six days. In that time frame, and then I kind of go back and i I look at like years prior, and it kind of matches. It's like that twentieth through the twenty seventh. You need to be in the stand like the the bucks are showing like crazy in this yeah. area, you know. Yeah. So it's really yeah. cool to take the data too if you can like really hold yourself to it.
1: It's that's the trick is holding yourself to it. But yes, I've I've never regretted having that stuff when I have it. I always look at it like, oh, this is. This is like gold.
0: Yep. Yeah. Speaking of October, I want to transition a little bit. I want to talk about October 1st through the 15th. Now, this is something I get asked a lot, Uh, tactics and and approaches to the 1st, the 15th, and it it plays well because we're coming into October here shortly. It's going to happen. So what is the Mark Kenyon approach to the first two weeks of season, Um, I guess, lay out the nitty gritty like are you hunting mornings or you know where are you hunting in the evenings that kind of thing i know it can vary it's a very broad question but you know in a perfect world what is your approach for those first two weeks
1: yeah so so this would be like what i typically do and what i typically do is i usually look at the first three days of the season as one of my best chances to kill one of my target bucks on one of my main local farms that I've hunted for years and years and years. And usually these are farms where, um, I've had a buck that I've known for multiple years and you know, those first couple days before there's any hunting pressure, almost every single year I'll have a good chance, not a guarantee, but a chance. Like I'll see him or he'll have shown up the night before or the night after or or I have a close call, or I kill him, something like that. Those first few days of the season, pre chaos, are crucial. Yep. So I always have, you know, on those places a plan in place for a great early season hunt. And one of these spots, I can plant food plots and. I always make sure I've got good good early season food really tight to this best bedding area because year in and year out, you know, there's a great chance that that first night, if you have good conditions, you know, these bucks usually in mid to late September are pounding that early season food coming right out of the bedding area. And if I haven't screwed it up some way, and if it's not 85 degrees and the wind direction's right, there's a great chance they'll pop out and hit that. So if, you know all things being best case scenario, that would be what I'm hoping that happened October one, two, maybe three, I'm not hunting mornings on that property. Um, in m- most places, well, even if I wasn't hunting there, I would not hunt in the mornings if I didn't have to. This would be like, in you know, a local situation where I'm hunting, you know, hunting the spots when this time's right.
0: Close to home um, convenient.
1: Yeah. Yep. Close to home kind of things. This would be different if I was on a traveling hunt, but this is close to home. And so I'm gonna, you know, be glassing maybe that morning if I can For opening day. I'm definitely glassing the night before opening day from afar and trying to watch and see did they come out? Are they coming out? Did they post up close to the edge in the food plot? Which way do they come in? How are they using the wind? Are they around Um, in some spots I can see like farther back to the back of the property down and there's kind of an open swath of land I can see down so I could sometimes see are they coming to this little food source or that little food source. So I'm going to try to learn something from those nights prior and then night number one, take a stab in at one of those locations, which is a hunting. This is a edge of a food source kind of location for that first night. and and basically how I approach these couple properties, these couple local properties, is that I take a targeted strike or two the first night, two or three of the season. Um, I'll hunt that first night, really hoping to kill something. I'll hunt again the next night if conditions are okay. And then I will make a judgment call about day three, usually. So if I hunted the first two days and just didn't see anything that I'm after, I'll probably pull the plug and not go back in again. if I hunt the second day and I saw the big guy and he came out close and they just didn't come together or if I saw him off in the distance, but he was working his way and I think I can make a play on him, I'll, I'll, I'll hunt again. Um, but if it's like two just total whiffs with nothing positive at all, then I'll say, okay, you know what, back, let's back out. I don't need to push it here because these small local Michigan farms could be easily overpressured and I'm surrounded by lots and lots of hunting pressure. So my take in those situations is to strike hard and fast the first couple of days and hopefully take advantage of that early season pattern before they get bumped off of it from other hunters or me. Once that dies down, once I back out of that, then I'm moving to other places. I'm hunting other spots. Maybe it's other states. Maybe it's other properties in Michigan. Um, and I usually don't go back to like my best spots like that again until... Later in October, around like the twenty third, twenty fourth, twenty fifth, somewhere around there. So, what that means for the next you know week and a half of early October doesn't mean I stop hunting. Um, I'm doing a couple things at that point. After I took my couple targeted strikes, which are just those evening hunts, like I mentioned, because. Not that you can't succeed in the early season in October, but it can be more difficult in a lot of situations. So I err towards a slightly more conservative approach in the mornings so that I can get a really great hunt in the evenings when it seems like these deer move a little bit more. got a better chance of getting in there without spooking anything and having a smart plan to get out in the uh, after dark. So then after October 3rd, let's say, let's say I didn't kill anything and I never saw the buck I was after, uh, I'm going to shift into scout mode and travel mode. So I'll go in and check cameras or, or reposition cameras or do something. Cause basically all my scouting and work up to that point was all to try to kill that opening that buck. Everything yep. was focused on trying to get that one done. And If that didn't work now, it's like, okay, 10 regroup new plan. So I'll go in and maybe move cameras or maybe add cameras or maybe just check them. Um, that usually happens on like immediately after I know I'm done hunting. So the third or the fourth, because this is that point farthest from what I'm guessing I'll start hunting again I would much rather do my big check or whatever right then versus waiting a week or two doing it and then counting on or having to count on starting hunting again seven days later and that pressure I just made when I go into that property dick around now it's closer to when I want to hunt Mm -hmm. so I'm going to go in there and and do this kind of short range quick scouting and that's going to tell me one of two things, if I go in there and check cameras and it tells me that there's activity somewhere I wasn't aware of and that I should hunt, then I will hunt, I'll go in there and get after it. But if it's not, if it's how it oftentimes goes with these properties, it's it's kind of dead. There's probably some late September stuff. There was hopefully something, you know, early October maybe. Um, but if it didn't happen after that, well then I've got to figure out what's next. So yep. there's the scouting and then there's now my hunting season continues and I lots of times will travel to another nearby state for a local hunt. And I like to try to get that early still too. And I found like I'll, I've done this many years where I'd hunt the first couple days in Michigan, hoping to kill one of those target bucks, And then if it doesn't pan out, I always try to get to my kind of secondary state um, before the end of that first week, because I feel like especially some of these states where it's slightly lower pressure, you can still have that, kind of beginning of the season halo effect last yep. a little bit longer. Agreed. So I'll head down to Iowa on the 4th or the 5th, or I'll head to Ohio and hunt the 6th and the 7th or whatever. And you can still get that early season, you know, pre too much hunting pressure opportunity. So I'll do that kind of thing and, and do a similar type of hunt, um, you know, hunting some kind of bed to food pattern. Um, and I'll be, you know, not mega aggressive but i will try to be like in a kill spot it's a kill hunt yep um and hopefully you have you know enough history or information from from whatever kind of scouting you did that year to put you in a place to you know to succeed and a lot of my hunting now almost all of my hunting is like you said earlier hang and hunt so i'm going there with a saddle and climbing sticks yep and so i'll go in there and hunt you know night number one on a food source right inside like a little staging area and then i'm going to hopefully be in a spot where I can see something and then adjust. So the perfect situation is that I I get in there, I can see the food source, but I can also see what's happening in the cover around me and I can learn something. I can see if a buck does come out or I can see where all the deer are coming out or something that allows me to then make an adjustment. But I'm very, very much an observe and adjust hunter now versus putting up a stand in August and that being like, oh, well that's where I hunt with the West wind. Yep. I don't do that anymore. Now it's set up somewhere that makes sense, then observe, what did the deer do? Okay, now I'm moving tomorrow. Make How do move I yep. move based on that adjustment, based on the changing conditions? Um, and, you know, I'm, at that time of year, it's almost always going to be something like a staging area between bedding area and food source, unless you know, like some little isolated apple tree back in the cover that's tight to the bedding or something that's just like a slam dunk and it requires you to get really aggressive and dive in there. Um, but I'm not going to do that unless there's a really, really strong reason to do that. Okay. Um, once I've done a hunt like that, now we're in like the second week of October in most years, this is when I am going to shift to just observe scout from afar and hunt does or hunt like some random public land just for fun. And just to like try new things. Like sometimes I'll go hunt some public land close to my house where I have, I've not invested a lot of time scouting or work or anything like that. It's just like, Hey, I want to keep hunting so I can hunt it's the weekend of the 12th. I can get out there and hunt and it'd be fun and I'll shoot a doe and who knows, I'll try this. Maybe I'll try being really aggressive and dive into the spot. looks like a bedding area. And if I blow it up, who cares? Uh, you know, I'm not playing hunting year again, so I'll just learn and see what happens. I think that's a really good way to spend some of those middle of October days. If you're hunting local and you're not traveling and, You've got some time. Um, It's a great way to get out there and hunt and grow, but not blow up your main spots. If you just have like a small farm or two, like I have, if you've got, you know, 800 acres of primo managed land, maybe you can bounce around and hunt good spots the whole damn month. Um, But I can't. Um, So at a, at a super high level, I guess that's. Yep that's what that time period looks like
0: you know and to kind of go back to our data points in the notes you kind of hit the nail on the head of something that happened to me last year and i hunted the first three days of october in michigan um i'm i uh and then casey and i went to ohio the fifth sixth seventh in that time frame and exactly what you just said happened like i had two of my shooters show up on the second i was in a different stand when they showed up they showed up on cell cam so i kind of picked wrong that night but then when we went down to ohio there was like a five day stretch four five six seven eight somewhere right in there that was off the chain and it was you know we were seeing all of our shooters in daylight on on field edges really i mean we were kind of The way Casey likes to hunt and we like to approach things early is just kind of sit from afar and then react like you were talking. So we were kind of sitting from afar and it was the first night like a really good three-year-old came out and I really tried to get him to, (laughs) to indulge and like let's get the season started. But he's like, no, no, we got a lot of season left. But like those data points, you can kind of go into this next year if you have those. Looking at like, okay, I can plan out a little more efficiently probably just on what happened last year. Because I would forget that. I have a terrible, terrible brain like for remembering things. <laughs> so I'd forget that. But um, no, that's that's great info. And kind of in how I've approached things the last couple of years. I a lot like you. I would set up stands preseason, and these are the ones I was going to hunt. I've really ad- ad- adopted the run and gun method the last couple years, and it's it's made things more fun to be honest with you. So it's cool to hear you say all that stuff. Well, Mark, I appreciate you coming on and 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 doing this. Um, and actually you know want to come on and and chat Uh, hopefully we can do this again maybe during season stuff i uh you know respect you a lot you know i've 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 looked up to you for the last couple years and you got me into podcasting so thank you very much for all that i think i told you that before but uh thank you you know i want to echo that again man so thank you very much for coming on
1: yeah you're so welcome it was fun i i enjoyed it and hope that uh hope some of the stuff can help folks.
0: Yeah, definitely. Now, if you have any, uh, if anybody wants to look at what you're doing or read or read what you got going on or, you know, watch anything, where would you direct them to go?
1: Yeah. So we've kind of relaunched Wired in a big way. We've got a whole slew of writers writing daily articles. Uh, We've got a new series of educational videos on YouTube. We've got three podcasts, an episode coming out every week now in the hunting season. So they can basically find all that at themeateater.com slash wired. So go to the meat eater website slash wired, and that'll take you to like the Wired to Hunt homepage where all this stuff is. You can also just search for Wired to Hunt on Whatever it is you're doing, you'll find us there. YouTube, Instagram, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. Um, but we're, we're pumping it out. Lots and lots of stuff for diehard deer hunters. So uh, hopefully there's something there for everyone.
0: Good stuff, man. Well, thank you very much again. And uh, good luck this fall. Thank you. You too. And there you have it. Another awesome episode. Mark Kenyon, thank you very much for coming on, man. It's greatly appreciated. Hopefully we can uh, carve out some time this fall that we can get back on and do that again. Uh, Hopefully everybody enjoyed it. I do want to say thank you guys again for all the support, all the downloads. It's, it's tremendous. The amount of feedback I'm getting right now and the engagement from, from the podcast. If you guys could give me, could do me a favor and go to iTunes, there's a five star there. You know, if you scroll down, you click on the fall podcast, scroll all the way down, all the way down. And, uh, if you're on your phone and, there's a five star, click the five star. That'd be great. And also, if you want to leave a written review, um, that'd be greatly appreciated as well. So thank you guys very much. And don't forget, we'll be right here next week on the Fall Podcast. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest.
1: Oh. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky.